Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Christ Followers podcast, we're back in the book of Acts. And on our last study, we actually got to verse 32. But we're going to backtrack and actually start at verse 29 for a little review here and some further in-depth analysis. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Thanks, Lord, again for giving this opportunity to study your word Uh, to put it upon our hearts that we can be beacons of light to one and all and be examples of peacemakers in what we're doing to try to educate people about the words of Christ and to live those words in all words and deeds that they do in, in their lives and in our lives. And thank you for this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Welcome, Mark. Yes, uh, thank you. It's good to be with everyone. We've started a few weeks ago looking at the book of Acts, which is a continuation of the gospel according to Luke. And we're noticing that Acts is written intentionally parallel to the gospel of Luke to demonstrate that the new corporate body of Christ, the corporate body of believers, is... Now, picking up where Jesus in his physical body left off. And we're going to be noting those similarities throughout the book. We'll definitely get into that uh, point uh, heavily when we get to chapter 3. In chapter 1, we saw that Christ spent time with the disciples after his resurrection. He was already in kind of a spiritual resurrected state. He could appear through walls, he could fade in, fade out, he could eat when he wanted to or not eat when he wanted to, but he he spent uh, time with them and gave them particular instruction regarding the true nature of the kingdom of God. And we're noting that one of the key themes uh, in the book of Acts is the restoration of the kingdom to Israel, which was the question that the disciples asked him after all of this intense instruction and divine opening of the minds they said lord are you at this time restoring the kingdom to israel they understood that this was what all the prophecies uh, of the uh, israelite nation all pointed towards was a restoration of the kingdom to israel and now we have gotten to chapter 2 the day of pentecost roughly 10 days after jesus 
finally uh, ascended for the last time and left them to kind of ponder things for about 10 days. And then on this day of Pentecost, all of the Pentecost that had ever occurred before, the Feast of the First Fruits, were all fulfilled in this one day in Jerusalem when the first fruits of the restored kingdom of Israel are about to be uh, called together. And we had said that the disciples were continuing to stay in an upper room. The only upper rooms that would have been in Jerusalem would have been down in the southeastern part of the city near David's tomb and a couple of other tombs that were inside the city wall. And this would have just been a stone's throw from the Pool of Siloam where the multitudes gathered to ceremonially bathe and to wait their turn to go up the monumental staircase way up the hill to the Temple Mount, which, as huge as it was, could not contain all of the Judean pilgrims who came from all over the world on these major feast days like Pentecost. And uh, the Holy Spirit appears to the disciples, and a sound like a mighty rushing wind uh, comes upon them, and the Holy Spirit descends on them looking like tongues of fire. And so that the huge crowds gathered there at the Pool of Siloam uh, would have heard and seen all this and just kind of walked around the corner to uh, to this uh, house where presumably uh, Peter and the rest of them are looking down from the roof of this house where they're staying. The houses there uh, to this day are in a stair step. It's so steep that the houses are, are built in a stair step fashion to where the the roof of the house below is the front yard or backyard, however you'd say it, of the house uphill. Hmm. So uh, it would have been very easy for for the people on the street coming from the Pool of Siloam, almost right up against the city wall, uh, where there would have been a big wide street, to look up and see these. And, and he would have been able to address uh, thousands and thousands of people who would have crowded uh, into the street down below. And so he has quoted the prophet Joel and shown that in the last days of Israel, uh, the Spirit would be poured out upon them, and all these signs that accompanied the death of Christ uh, would have occurred. And this was before the day of the Lord came, but whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's that's a key point out of the uh, prophecy of Joel that we'll see revisited here. Uh, in the latter part of chapter 2 and again in chapter 3. They have a way out. They murdered the Son of God, but there is a way out. Now, Peter then reminded them of all the signs and wonders that uh, Jesus had done in their midst and how that they were guilty of his murder, that they were the ones who delivered him up to Gentiles, lawless men, the Romans, who uh, crucified and killed him. But God has raised him up. And then he quotes from the 110th Psalm, almost, he, he quotes the whole Psalm uh, right there. This Psalm is quoted uh, more than any other Messianic prophecy out of the Old Testament. I think if you take all of the uh, Greek scriptures, you'll find this quoted more than any other single Hebrew scripture regarding the Messiah. And this one deals with reigning and the promise to David that some one of his descendants would uh, reign. So that brings us down to where we're going to pick up. We're going to back up a little bit here again, and let's read uh, verses 29 
down through 36, please. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. All right, thank you. Now, this this is very critical as we are faced with the modern-day reality of of so many uh, professing Christians in the United States who do not believe the kingdom of Christ has been established yet. We are talking about David, who was the the ultimate king of a united Israel. The United Kingdom only lasted a, a relatively short while for the reigns of Saul, David, and Solomon. And then the kingdom was split and impoverished as Egypt came up and uh, looted the whole land of Palestine and carried off all the gold that David and Solomon had accumulated, which made for a nice lining of a bunch of Egyptian tombs and and, and part of their later period, no doubt. But David was the the pinnacle of the achievement of the, the United Kingdom of Israel. Now, as in verse 29 here, as Peter is is reminding everyone about his tomb being with us this day, in all likelihood, in the part of town that he was in, he could point right down from the roof where he was at the tomb of David. King Herod the Great had built a white marble monument to mark David's tomb, which would have been there at that time. Uh, and, of course, once the Romans got through with the city in AD 70, there was none of that left. But there was a great marble monument to David uh, there at the uh, entrance to his tomb at the, at the time here when Peter is speaking. And Peter reminds us that David was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him that one of his physical descendants would sit upon his throne. Now here, this is critical right here. Verse 31, he foreseeing this spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. Okay, so Peter is tying the fact that someone would sit on David's throne to the resurrection of the Christ. That's going to be important. He was not left to Hades, the realm of the dead, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, or resurrected him, and we're all witnesses of it. So these men were claiming, and they had the witness of the of the Spirit of God through this wind and the foreign languages and the tongues of fire. 
You see, these signs and wonders were given to confirm the word that the disciples spoke. So they are claiming to have seen the resurrected Christ. And the Spirit of God is witnessing and confirming, you know, that what they're saying is true. Now, he is saying that this Jesus is not with them anymore. He is by the right hand of God exalted. He's received a promise that the Greek is a little bit ambiguous here in verse 33. This is either the promise of the Holy Spirit or this gift that has been poured out on his disciples. Or it could be referring to this promise that God made by the Holy Spirit to David that a physical descendant of his would take his throne. It could mean that as well in the Greek. But in light of this promise made, this this outward manifestation of the Spirit of God has been poured forth and you can see and hear it. Now, verse 34 here, he says, David did not ascend into the heavens because he was dead and buried. He had to wait for the resurrection, the hope of Israel, like all the other Israelites. So this is really uh, important that David's descendant is going to reign from where? Uh, and I'm, I'm asking you all a question there in the studio. Yeah. <laughs> See, David didn't go into the heavens, but the Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand. Where where would that be? The right hand in of heaven. God. In heaven. In heaven. Yeah, in heaven. Exactly. Yeah. It's a spiritual so, kingdom. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, we, we read that. But again, we have so many friends and relatives and and people that aren't even our friends who are doing a lot of damage in the world because they don't believe that the kingdom has been established yet. They believe that the kingdom is going to be established in physical Jerusalem, in physical Palestine. But here, Peter is proving that the the kingdom of David, when it is restored, and he's saying it has been restored, and that this descendant of David is not ruling from Palestine. He's ruling from heaven. That's what Peter's just said. Does, does, is, oh, am I right? Doesn't that what it look like? Holy priest. Does look like yeah. So the dispensationalists, the Christian Zionists, they have to concede this because it's written here. In black and white, and so Mark, let me let me interject that the great disbeliever or the great uh, distorter, that being the modern, up-to-date Zionist version of the Schofield Reference Bible, has many footnotes in other pages leading up to this. Enormous footnotes on the previous page, 1164 uh, and 1163, 1160, literally thousands of words of footnotes. But there's nary a footnote on this page we're looking at pertaining to these scriptures. So basically, they just they just overlook this. Uh, they don't interpret it. They don't deny it. They don't say what you just said, that this shows that the, the kingdom is to be a spiritual kingdom and that the Holy Spirit has been given to us, the Holy Spirit, through Jesus. But they essentially just completely ignore any mention of what these words are all about. And we found repeatedly that that is a good sign that they don't have an answer to these words. Well, they do have a workaround, I learned. Okay. But it takes something that's relatively simple and straightforward and makes it extraordinarily complex. Their workaround is that, well, yes, Jesus did ascend and he is on the throne, 
But this is not the fulfillment of the promised kingdom. This, and they make a differentiation, and we've run into this a couple of times before. They make a differentiation between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of David and maybe even the kingdom of Christ. They have two or three different kingdoms. And you can see how that would get incredibly complicated because the prophets in the Bible use these terms synonymously. But the dispensationalists don't like synonyms or any kind of figurative language. And so they, they're trying to read these literally, and they're, they, they're making this out into multiple kingdoms. So this was a kingdom uh, here, a heavenly kingdom, but it's really not that important because the only important kingdom is going to be the millennial kingdom, which will be established in literal Jerusalem on David's literal chair. But anyway, so I, I'm not going to waste any more time talking about that because it's, it's a completely extra-biblical concept. I just pass that on to let you know that they do have a workaround for nearly all of these problems. Didn't Jesus point it out, too, to the Pharisees about David saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Well, I don't remember him actually saying that, but some of the Gospels emphasize that more than others, or his kingship. In John, he doesn't even mention his relationship to David but of course he does stress to Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world and so again you you can just it's just a horrible complication to, to think that there's multiple kingdoms that are being discussed it's so much simpler when you understand that it's all one it's it's God's ultimate purpose the messianic kingdom and that it's being born here uh, on the day of Pentecost yeah Chuck you got uh, cut off just one word. In doing this, the dispensational people, in defense, of course, of the Zionists who are essentially now writing these Bibles, they're very blatant Zionists who are actually editing these Schofield Bibles, and their presumption is that the writers of the Bible were too ignorant to explain which of the several kingdoms they were talking about. So we're supposed to believe that there were more than one kingdom, but the people writing the Bible we're not wise enough to tell us which one they're talking about. In reality, of course, they were wise, and this is God's word. And were there more than one kingdom, they would have told us which one they were talking about. Yeah, well, that's at least consistent because they also believe that the writers of the Bible were confused on all the time statements. Uh, you know, even though they expected something to happen within their generation, they were dead wrong about that. And, uh, you know, they, they weren't given the time to know, and so they thought it was coming, but they were just dead wrong. Paul and Peter, all Jude, uh, all of them uh, were just wrong. So at least, at least that's consistent, that yeah. the writers of the Bible were confused and had no idea what they were talking about. Isn't, isn't that a comforting thought? Yes. <laughs> well, I think it's very important that we make these distinctions, and uh, so... Thanks, Mark. Yeah. Now, just as we close out this section here, when he's quoting the 110th Psalm here in verse 34 or 35, you know, he's he's talking about until I make uh, your enemies the footstool of your feet. And again, who were the enemies of Christ at this time? Well, Peter has just told us who they were. Uh, who would y'all guess the, the enemies of 
Jesus Christ were at this time. Sadducees and Pharisees and chief priests. Yeah, those who had him unlawfully put to death, as we uh, as we saw in our detailed study of the Gospel of John. So this whole context, you know, Joel 2, only those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is imminent destruction, just like John the Immerser had uh, been proclaiming. The, just the fact that these are the last days of Israel, that sounds a little bit ominous that Peter has proclaimed their last days to be upon them. And the enemies of Jesus are going to be trod underfoot. So this is all consistent. It's, it's talking about imminent judgment on, on Judea. But his, his thought is continuing here. Let's read verse 36 down through 42, please. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. All right, so notice that he has another message of impending doom there in verse 40. Save yourselves from this crooked, twisted generation. So that ties into what I was just saying, what we saw in the quote from Joel 2, the last days, the enemies being trod under his feet in verse 35. And now he's quoting from the Song of Moses, the last generation of Israel would be a twisted and perverse generation, Deuteronomy 30:31, which John the Baptist and Jesus also quoted. Now Peter, continuing all the things that Jesus did in his body, <laughs> he's using the same words that Jesus used. Anyway, it didn't look real good for him. Uh, There's a sense of imminence here. But he starts off here by saying, let all the house of Israel know assuredly. Now, Judah, remember, is not, or Judea is not the whole house of Israel, but they are rather the remnant of Israel. They were called Judeans because that was their country, that was their nationality. But ethnically, they thought of themselves as Israelites. They They were the last remnant of Israel. Israel was divided into two and then impoverished after Solomon's death. It uh, lasted another 250 years before the Assyrians carried off the whole northern kingdom, which was based in the city of Samaria. They were dispersed throughout the Assyrian Empire. The book of Hosea says that they were uh, sown like seed among the nations, and several of the other prophets say the same thing. I think Isaiah says that, and... uh, Micah, they were 
They were sown like seed through the nations. They were dispersed. Judah herself survived that one, but every single town and village other than Jerusalem was carried off by the Assyrians at the same time as the northern kingdom. The only people that survived were those inside the walls of Jerusalem because God had mercy. They had a righteous king, Hezekiah, at that time. They were given another 120 years, and then they were also carried off into Babylonian captivity. They were restored, but the rest of Judah, the rest of Israel were not restored. Only just, I mean, a tiny percentage of the rest of them came back to the land of Palestine. So here's a little hint here. Uh, let all the house of Israel know, because again, we're, we're, we're talking about the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. And so that, that's got to be more than just the remnant of Judea who, who were alive at that time. It involves restoring greater Israel, which had been scattered abroad. Uh, back in Acts 1, we saw where Christ had commanded them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and then to the uttermost part of the earth. And we'll see that that's exactly what transpires in the book of Acts as they are going out gathering in uh, the lost uh, sheep of Israel into the newly restored spiritual kingdom of Israel. So he's addressing the whole house of Israel and telling them confidently that God has made this Jesus of Nazareth Lord and Christ. And this word Christ means the anointed one, and that means he's king. That David was anointed by Samuel. All the kings of Israel were anointed to show their kingship. And Christ's anointing is spoken of as an accomplished fact. So he's already a king, and we would contend that then that the restoration of the kingdom of Israel has begun. Now, that's the good news. The bad news is they've just been told uh, two or three times that they murdered the Messiah. Now, under the law of Moses, when you committed a sin, what did you do? You stoned the person to death. Well, what if you were the person who committed the sin? What, what did you do? Run out in the desert. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, it well, would depend on what crime. Say, what if you committed a, a minor crime? What if you or, you know, what if you touched a dead person? Uh, well, you have to have ritual right. cleansing, I guess. Ritual cleansing. Yeah. And what if you sacrificed? Uh, or... Yeah, you you had to have make a sacrifice. What if you stole something from your neighbor? What happened? You lost your hand. That's in Saudi Arabia today, that you lose your hand. Oh, uh-huh. yeah. You're restored, yeah, two or fourfold, depending on the nature of the thievery. And then you offered a sin offering up at the temple, right? You took an animal, and his innocent life had to be poured out because of your guilt. And so they had to do this. Now, did they actually get forgiveness of those sins by doing that with the blood of the animals? Well, the Hebrews, right, uh-huh. we haven't. We haven't studied Hebrews, Hebrews yet, but he says it, it's impossible for sins to be remitted by the blood of sheep and goats. So they kind of rolled them forward is how it's described. There is, it's not a perfect analogy, but they rolled their sins forward with these sin offerings until the Day of Atonement rolled around, uh, which is 
the holiest day in the uh, Israelite calendar, and it's the rabbinic Jews today uh, still observe it as uh, their most holy day, Rosh Hashanah, the Day of Atonement. And on that day, you know, you'd had your sins kind of rolled forward to that day by the blood of the animal that you sacrificed. And then on that day, the high priest made all these special sacrifices and went into the Holy of Holies. And everybody was waiting outside to see if he could make it back out alive. And they, they tied a rope around his ankle in case he was struck dead when he entered into the throne room of God in the temple and the people sat outside for an hour or so while he's in there doing the ritual because they knew if he didn't make it out alive that their sins had not been rolled forward for another year. So they'd gone through this year after year after year, but their sins were still there. They, they were, there was still an accounting for them. They're just kind of, they get another year extension on the note till the penalty is due. Does that make sense? Very interesting. Yeah, but now, but the crime of murder, and y'all, y'all were way ahead of me on this. What was the offering for the crime of murder? A life. There, yeah, there wasn't one. <laughs> Manslaughter. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you could flee to a city of refuge, but for murder, the uh, the family of the victim could come into the city of refuge and take you out and kill you. Uh, if you had committed a murder, there was no sin offering to cover murder. What crime had they just been uh, convicted of by Peter? Crucifying the Messiah. Murder. And under the law, what could they do about that? Nothing. Nothing. You see how there's no accidents in the Bible? <laughs> the law of Moses, for all of its intricacies and so on, you see, it points to Jesus Christ. The whole way the law was supposed to teach Israel and us is that under the law there's no satisfaction for sin and you have to have a redeemer, a Messiah. So the truly sincere Israelites were looking for a Messiah, you know, when Jesus was born. Anna and Simeon in the temple and so on. And believers today should read the law and realize that it points to the absolute necessity for a Messiah. So Peter has convicted them, and they are pricked in their hearts. They're convinced there at verse 37, and they, they, they're they bemoaned at this out. What can we do? What shall we do? I mean, there's nothing. There's nothing that could be done. But Peter tells them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to the remission of your sins. This is something totally new that they've never had before, the complete remission of sin, and it's a sin of murder. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this repentance is is very important and uh, often overlooked, but it's, it's not a word we really use in conversational English, but it basically has the meaning of Turn around 180 degrees. Reverse your direction. Change direction dramatically. Because they'd been headed towards absolute destruction. And we're seeing, we're going to see also in the book of Acts, that this is a new exodus. This is an intentional parallel to the story of the Israelites in bondage in Egypt. 
and Moses the deliverer bringing them out of Egypt with mighty signs and wonders. All of that looked forward to these days, the days of of the apostles, and they are now telling these people to change direction, repent, and then uh, be baptized. I think we should mention that when the English Bibles were translated, both the Catholic and the Protestant churches were practicing a sprinkling for baptism. The Greek word baptize means to cleanse by immersion or cleanse by dipping. And uh, this was the right. only type of baptism that was practiced for 400 or 500 years. The Catholic Church began substituting sprinkling for real sick people and then for babies when they changed doctrine to uh, think that babies needed to be baptized. And they also were, were digging up uh, bones and sprinkling holy water on them, baptizing the dead, and so on. So gradually the Catholic Church changed baptism from immersion to sprinkling and sometimes pouring. The Reformation corrected a lot of things but didn't correct that. They continued to use uh, the sprinkling in most of the Reformed and Lutheran churches. And so... At the time that the English Bibles were translated in the 1500s, the translators found it more expedient to just not translate the Greek word baptizo. So they just anglicized it and put the right verb ending on the Greek verb baptizo to cleanse by dipping. And uh, so it's been an unfortunate source of division uh, in the churches ever since for for the last um, 500 years. But... He's telling them to change direction and then to be immersed into the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is kind of the the initial pronouncement of God's salvation plan right here in Acts 2.38. And it's I guess it's appropriate to put in a little history here. Some of the Calvinist doctrines that came down through the Reformation were kind of an overreaction to some of the perverted doctrines of the Catholic Church in the 1500s where you could you know pay a certain sum of money to be guaranteed entrance into heaven and there was a great rejection against uh, uh works having anything to do with salvation and the doctrine came to be developed that the only uh, way anyone could be saved is for God to choose them and to miraculously zap that person with the Holy Spirit. So by the 1820s in America, in order for one to be accepted as a member into a typical Protestant church, they had to stand up and explain the miraculous experience they had of when God's Holy Spirit came upon them and miraculously saved them. Now, I will just boldly stick my neck out and say that most people made up a miraculous experience so that they could be accepted into their family church. But there were a few honest souls who didn't want to make up an experience. <laughs> and so they were they were not allowed to be members of any church. And they, there became a whole class of these people in the 1820s and 30s known as skeptics. And some of them weren't as skeptical of God or the Bible as they were of the churches in that uh, in that day. And this this was kind of the climate in which 
the restoration movement started up uh, in the 1820s here in America. And these were people from all these denominations who who came together and just looked here at what Peter's saying in Acts 2.38 and other uh, verses in the, in the Bible and said, well, you know, this doesn't demand some miraculous uh, experience. This says if you repent and are baptized, that you'll be added to the body of Christ by God and you'll receive this gift or as we later learn, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, of God's Spirit. You'll be part of Christ's body and so his spirit will be also in you. You'll be united by this one spirit of God. So they said, you know, it's, it's, there is emotion attached to it, but you can rationally understand what God wants you to do to be saved. Uh, of course, the, the, uh, the hyper Calvinists at least are rapidly opposed to any such talk uh, to this very day and view any such thing as apostasy. Now, but, if we fast forward here to the 20th century, we find that this is metamorphed somehow, and there probably are churches that still expect you to be able to relay a miracle that caused you to be converted by God's miraculous intervention in your life. But they, they don't seem to be nearly as prevalent as they were in the 1830s. But today, we have similar concepts of like laying your hands on the TV set while some televangelist prays or reciting the sinner's prayer. And none of these things are in the Bible at all. They, they seem to be the invention of mankind. So there are, there are many, many counterfeit and man-made means to enter in to the body of Christ or the restored kingdom of Israel. But the Bible describes it uh, very plainly and we'll see throughout the book of Acts we'll see numerous conversions and there's kind of a there's not a totally consistent pattern but certain things repeat this call for repentance the call for uh, an immediate immersion in water and in some cases the public confession that you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God and uh, it's it's pretty easy to see so we'll We'll note these. This is the first one, and we'll note the others as we go through, and we can kind of compare the biblical means of entering into the kingdom to those that are popular in many of the denominations today. Your, your thoughts or comments on this? Well, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That message hasn't changed, and... When I was young, in my 20s, I tried to start a newsletter called Repent, but the editor said that was too strong a word. So we ended up with Together, and the newsletter didn't last more than a year. (laughs) But I thought it was a good word to start with, you know. You were right. Repent. (laughs) And that is the essence of what this, the most important fact is usually the one stated first, and this this begins with a clear shout of repent, uh, and then the rest uh, mm-hmm. follows along after that, sort of as a result. And, mm-hmm. of course, receiving the Holy Spirit is, is beautifully put. That's, that's what salvation is, is all about. So, God within us, through the Holy God Spirit, God yes. Us, so. 
So I, I think it's yeah. They don't play very heavy on the repent part today no. uh, in churches. That seems to be no. a secondary or uh, overlooked activity. Why would, yeah. Why would that yeah. be? I don't know. It's it hurts attendance and the contribution. <laughs> the, the bread and butter is right there. Yeah. You don't repent. Yep. You tithe. Yeah. Tithe. Yeah. My friend Rod Blair from Bakersfield was visiting here this last weekend doing a seminar at our church uh, on his trips to uh, Palestine. And, yeah, he, he was making this point all through his talks that, at least in the Church of California, repentance is not a popular concept. The idea is that God's grace will cover everything. So just keep on with what you're doing with your present lifestyle. You don't need to change direction 180 degrees because... God's grace is powerful enough to uh, cover all all of your sin. This message, I guess, is is uh, again more conducive to large attendance and large contributions. And it's, it's largely implied, wouldn't you say, Mark? They just sort of ignore, repent, and then people get the idea that they're not not much is really being demanded of them. And it's a lot easier to recite the sinner's prayer if you know that not much is being demanded of you. Uh, yeah, I'm, I, I'm sure that's right. I mean, we, and I guess it's easy to see why our culture has gone into a moral cesspool because the Christians have not been really doing anything. They've just been, you know, continuing to live their life like usual and, you know, sitting in a pew, listening to a paid professional entertain them, you know, an hour a week, if, if it's convenient. And that's about their total commitment. But this, this concept of baptism, it's, it's not a miraculous event where the water has any saving power or anything, but it's a, it's a symbol of being buried with Christ and then being raised into a newness of life. Uh, Paul will talk about that in a lot of his letters. And, so it is to be a new life. That's tied into this idea of repentance. You come up out of the water, and you're a new man, a new woman. You're part of the new creation, this perfect bride of Christ that cannot turn against him like his old brides of Israel and Judea did uh, in the old days. But the newly restored Israel, the newly restored bride of Christ, is pure and perfect. And there's a there. It's the new creation. It's greatly superior to the original creation, and all of the old things are supposed to be dead and gone. All right. So we've solved two or three major theological issues here, just in the last few minutes. Continuing here in verse 39, Peter assures the audience that this promise, this, which is phenomenal, something they never knew before, that their sins can truly be remitted, I mean, can go away forever, that it can be forgiven of the crime of murder. This is not only for them that day, but it is to their children and those who are far off, as many as the Lord shall call unto him. And, uh, you know, I believe this is still going on today. The Lord is calling through providence. Uh, he is calling different people uh, to him. You know, we're, we're not going to change the minds of the bulk of the people in the world who are doing exactly what they want to do. But there are people out there who are searching for spiritual truth. 
These are the ones that God is calling to them. And uh, our job is to find those who are searching and to help bring them into this new exodus, this new safe haven, which is the body of Christ. Outside of that body is only destruction and eternal darkness. And so we have this great opportunity to uh, to look for those who are searching for uh, spiritual truth. And I, I think that that much applies to us today, just as it did to them there in the first century. He goes on, and, and, and with many other words, which I would love to hear someday, he's just pouring his heart out, trying to beg them to save themselves from this crooked generation, which we already talked about. So there was a, a real urgency because this has been pronounced now multiple times as the last generation of physical Israel. His word worked at least on 3,000 people. Those who believed him were immersed. Again, they just had to walk a couple of blocks out of the Pool of Siloam, which was set up for this very purpose, for for the ritual bathing of, of thousands of people. And there were added to them that day about 3,000 souls. And if we skip ahead the last verse of this chapter, the Lord added to them day by day those that were saved. So this adding here is being done by God. Again, God is adding these people to the body. This work of salvation is God's work alone. Uh, I mean, this is, is very true. Uh, sadly, again, the, the, the hyper-Calvinists believe that baptism is a work and therefore is not essential for salvation. But it's, if it is a work, it's God's work. It's not ours. It's something that God planned for us to do to enter and to be added into the body. And interestingly, the Southern Baptist Church in the United States is one of the most uh, outspoken opponents of baptism as a means of entering into the kingdom of God. They don't really believe the kingdom's here in the first place, and they they still have kind of a chip on their shoulder about the whole restoration movement, which split off huge numbers of people from the Baptist church back in the 1830s and 40s. And so they, uh, alone of nearly all Protestant churches in the world, uh, teach, no, you, you know, you don't need to be baptized. Or, don't worry, it's something you can do a year from now or two years from now. But it has nothing to do with you, your salvation, which is very unfortunate. But here we see this woman who is conceived at, at the cross of Christ in its embryonic form, 120 souls as Christ's side is, is pierced, blood and water pours out, symbolizing kind of this new birth. And you know, they're there for a few days, not quite two months. And now this embryonic uh, church is now born here with the addition of 3,000 souls uh, to the body. We see them continuing uh, steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayer. Again, it wasn't a spectator sport. They didn't come up to the Temple Mount, sit in a comfortable chair, and listen to uh, Peter preach once a week. They were involved in this on a daily basis. They had been born into a new family. Their whole life had been turned upside down. They had all new priorities. They had a lot to learn 
in a short time. The word fellowship is really butchered in our culture, and this can be uh, used for any kind of church activity, camping, fishing, bowling, all of this is called fellowship. But the word, when it is used in the Bible, the Greek word is referring to working together in spiritual activities. So a lot of these that are called fellowship today I don't think would really qualify. The breaking of bread and prayers, this this probably is talking about taking meals together and also uh, taking the Lord's Supper uh, as Jesus had observed there right before his arrest and told them to uh, do this in remembrance of me. So they are all part of this new family, and, and we we get some sense of intensity here in this verse 42, or at least I do. Mm-hmm. No, um, exciting times back then. The, the, the Romans didn't know what to do with them or do about it. Oh, no, we'll see. They're going to cause a lot of trouble. The Romans aren't too worried yet at this point. It's mainly the Judeans, though, uh, we'll see here that are uh, really worried. This We're at a paragraph break, and I think we've gone about uh, 45 minutes. So we'll, we've got just this one last little paragraph to uh, go in Chapter 2, and then we can roll right into Chapter 3. Chapter 3 is, is just as exciting as uh, Chapter 2. It might take place the day or two uh, afterwards, but uh, there's still some phenomenal concepts in Chapter 3 which are basically ignored by most of the uh, churches that I'm aware of today. So we got some real exciting mm-hmm. um, ahead of us here as we get into Acts chapter 3. Well, great. Thank you, Mark. Again, an excellent study, and we'll look forward to continuing on. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast, and please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.